coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. Right, and I think it's kind of cliche to say, but you just add value. You add value to people. You add value in educating them. Like, mm-hmm. like you're adding a ton of value to your followers and your listeners by having this podcast, by bringing on guests and sharing knowledge about how to build wealth and how to build lifestyle and, and tax advantages and all those different amazing things. You are going to, you know, derive private money and mm-hmm. deal flow and all those different things from having your own podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Up next on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Tim Bratz, who is a local Cleveland entrepreneur who is in multifamily real estate. Actually, he does a hell of a lot of multifamily real estate. Tim's a great, great family person, great guy. You may have seen him on Facebook. He's always providing a hell of a lot of value and and speaking his mind and his opinion on on Facebook. We get into some of the ins and outs of growing your real estate career. Uh, Tim actually started in single family homes and he's grown that into hundreds of millions of dollars worth of multifamily real estate. Tim also has a number of training programs that teach other want uh, people who are looking to invest in multifamily real estate. He teaches you how to find those opportunities, and he even helps partner and fund opportunities that you may come across. So we talk about a lot of different things today, family, business, you know, being a better person. We cover a hell of a lot of different things. So I hope you enjoy today's episode of Pass the Secret Sauce with Tim Bratz. I'm one of four kids and my dad was a police officer, also had like a side business that did personnel security for hospitals and apartment buildings actually. And, uh, and then my mom was stay at home mom. And so she had a, a teaching degree and volunteered full time. So those are my parents as all American as you can get, I guess, a cop and a teacher. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I'm one of three kids. I have two older brothers and a younger sister. And, um, my older brothers, five and seven years senior to me, they pick on me a whole bunch, put, you know, put me in headlocks, give me noogies, all that stuff. And uh, my little sister and I were, were real close growing up. And then she hit puberty and she was like psycho, right? So um, <laughs> no, but, but our dinner table was, I mean, we all played sports. It was kind of chaotic and crazy with practices and games and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But I think my parents did a pretty good job of getting us all together. And um, uh, it didn't matter how much food was at the table. We would all just like, you know, a bunch of ravenous, yeah. ravenous dogs coming from uh, basketball, baseball and football. And soccer practice and uh, eat it all. But one of the questions my mom always asked at the dinner table was, what did you learn today? And mm-hmm. um, I think she instilled one of those, uh, one of those seeds in me of, of always be learning, right? Mm-hmm. doesn't matter what you have going on, like always be learning, a, a lifetime learner type thing. And uh, that's something that I still subscribe to today where I'm always trying to learn new things because, you know, but, but not only learn it, but knowledge is power and, and yeah. actually putting it to Put use, it to use. doing some good things with it. So I'm a big believer in constant and never-ending improvement. 
Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. So were you an entrepreneurial kid growing up? Were you the one slinging candy or anything like that? Or did you have any kind of like side things going on when you were growing up? Uh, I don't really remember. So my dad told me a story just like a couple of weeks ago that I used to take baseball cards and go to him and say, hey, dad, I'll, uh, I'll trade you you know, I want your three baseball cards and I'll give you this one guy that nobody's ever heard of. And I try to like <laughs> wheel and deal with him. And, uh, and he would just be like, all right, I'll tell you what, don't trade. You, you hold on to that one and I'll give you these three. And then we'll, we'll, uh, if I ever need that one, I'll come and get it from you. So, um, he kind of, he kind of helped with that as far as like uh, entrepreneurial, I can't remember anything really entrepreneurial until I hit high school. I used to cut my own hair. And so I remember going on vacation and like whatever middle, middle school and I, I needed a haircut and I couldn't. So I grabbed my brother's clippers and I cut my own hair and then I never paid for a haircut. And now I don't even need wow. haircuts. Right? <laughs> so, so I've never paid for a haircut after whatever it was when I was 12 years old. And my buddies would all come to me and ask me to cut their hair. So I used to cut their hair and they'd kick me five, 10 bucks in order to cut their hair. And then the other thing that I did was back in the days of like, Napster and Audio Galaxy and like all these uh, ways to rip digital music. I used to download, illegally download music and then create like music CDs for mm -hmm. people and then sell them to them. And so that's how I wheeled and dealed and made my, made my some money in, um, in high school. And then it kind of, you know, turned into, I had a, a, a painting company in mm -hmm. college and then I interned for a big real estate builder, home builder, one of the biggest in the country. And uh, that's how I got involved in like real estate. And I realized how much money there was in real estate in 2006 mm -hmm. and was like, I'm getting involved in real estate. So when I graduated from college, that's when I moved out to New York city. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio originally mm -hmm. and moved out to New York and uh, got a job as a real estate agent in commercial real estate. So, so it got me into real estate, man. So that's how, that's how you kind of got your first, first steps into commercial real estate. When did you, when did you really make the jump in yourself into commercial real estate? Obviously you were, you're doing it, you're, you know, you know, that was your job, but when did you start investing yourself into, into commercial? So I bought my first property, which was residential though. It was a, a duplex in 2009, April, 2009. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, and I realized I want to become an investor first. I just like, I, I kind of knew, Hey, you know, we all have this, know of this allure of residual income and passive income and this mailbox money that we all hear about. But then we all think we have to go and trade our time for money and do the transactional thing in order to stockpile our own cash mm -hmm. to then go and invest in these passive income producing assets. And for me, that's what I did. I went and got my real estate license. And then I realized pretty quickly that I need to be owning real estate, not brokering it. Mm -hmm. And I moved down to Charleston, South Carolina, which is where I'm coming to you from right now. And in, in Charleston, I found, this is 2008 now, and right as I go through this analysis paralysis, the market crashes. Mm -hmm. And everybody says, run from real estate. Nobody's investing in real estate, especially with a punk 23-year-old kid who's never done a deal before. And so I, got, I actually got it raised on my credit card. And, and um, I called up my credit card company, got them to increase my limit. And I bought uh, the cheapest house in the entire MLS, my credit card. Wow. So fixed up this duplex, personally did all the work to it, put it back on the market, and... Um, just uh, for sale by my owner and, you know, canvas neighborhoods with flyers and bandit signs and all that held an open house. And one of the neighbors came in and paid me $33,000 for it. I was all in for 19,000 and mm -hmm. I made $14,000. And so that was my first deal. My like soon thereafter, within a couple months thereafter, I bought my first buy and hold deal. Mm -hmm. And um, this is kind of what planted the seed of how I structure my deals today. So I ended up finding, finding a property from a seller, and they needed some cash, but didn't need all their cash. And I was buying a duplex for $50,000, fully occupied, 
550 in rent on the front end in the front house, 550 in rent on the back house. So it was generating $1,100 a month in cash. And uh, I went in, got the seller to hold back a note for 32,000. I raised mm -hmm. private money for 25,000. And at, at, so I had $57,000 of, of essentially private money. And I was able to go in and take over that deal with no money out of my own pocket, mm -hmm. walked away from closing with a $7,000 check and had a property that was cash flowing after everything around four or $500 a month. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, now I realize I didn't have to use my own money in order to go out and buy real estate. I could partner with private money investors and structure it that way. So that's what kind of culminated that. I you know, doubled down on that aspect for um, a couple of years. And in 2012, ended up uh, by my first apartment building. And it was, you know, this is like total, you know, uh, basement, bottom of the barrel pricing now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I bought an eight unit apartment building in Cleveland, Ohio, West 130th and, and uh, I-480. Right, okay. right over there. Okay. Yep. The road area, just north of, of Brook Park and I-480. And um, bought an eight unit apartment building over there. Three units were already occupied. I was bringing in around $1,000 a month in rent. And um, I bought it for $30,000. Wow. So wow. I ended up you know, renovating it, put 50 grand into it, got it fully occupied. And it was generating somewhere around uh, 3,500 a month uh -huh. in rent. So it was about $42,000 a year. I was self-managing it. I was netting around $27,000 a year and mm -hmm. ended up, um, it was, it was a 33% cap rate at my cost basis. Yeah. You know, wow. Like, wow. Like, and then, and then, you know, I just parlayed that into more and more and more properties, bigger properties, another eight unit, a 14 unit, and just organically grew my portfolio to about 140 units. And then at my partnership that I had with 140 units ended up, we decided to dissolve everything and liquidate everything. Mm -hmm. So I had to sell those. But as I did that, I kind of built up a few more units and got myself back up to a couple hundred units, which allowed me to go and, you know, buy a hundred unit apartment building. And then mm -hmm. I bought, you know, a 400 unit apartment building and just kind of, again, organically grew that. I, I never had a, a co-sponsor on a deal and wow. um, uh, never knew how to do that. And so I just, or, again, organically grew my portfolio personally. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I've never traditionally syndicated. I've never taken a syndication class. I've never read a book on syndication. I just utilized single family practices and, and equations and how I structure things on single family. And I did the exact same thing with the multifamily side. So I, I structure my syndications very differently than traditional you do. syndication structure. Yeah, you do. Can you talk a little bit about what, what you do differently than, than what typical syndication deals yeah, so are structured? Does everybody know, uh, do, do most of your listeners know how a traditional syndication is structured? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I guess do like a 30 second overview okay. of. So traditional syndication you know, let's say 30% of the overall equity in the deal goes to the general partners. That's the operating partners. 70% usually goes to the, and I, listen, I just learned this like two years ago because I've never started <laughs> a deal this way. And so 70% of the equity goes to the equity investors. So that's people actually downstroking the check for the down payment and operating capital. Out of that 30% for the GP, the general partners, that gets carved up amongst who found the deal, who sponsored the loan, who helped raise the capital, who's operating the project management, the property management, boots on the ground, all those different elements come out of the GP portion. Mm -hmm. uh, the LPs, the limited partners, the passive investors who have 70% of the deal, they essentially have, um, they passively invest and then they get a certain percentage, they get 70% of all the cash flows of all the refi proceeds and all those different things. Now they typically only get paid if the property's performing. 
So if the property's cash flowing, that's a great deal for them. If it's not cash flowing, they might be sitting an investment in this project for a year, three years, five years before they see any return on their on their investment, but they get 70% of the deal, which could be advantageous, 70% of the depreciation, all those things. Mm -hmm. The operating partners, the GPs, might only have 30%, but they can charge acquisition fees and asset management fees and other different sponsorship fees and fundraising fees. I've seen, I've seen a bunch of fees come off the table on that. And uh, again, it depends on the deal and the equity can, can change and vary and stuff. So that's traditional syndication. It's usually a five-year to 10-year hold, and um, they buy it at pretty close to a retail price. Maybe there's some value add. Maybe you can bump rents over, over time. And, you know, after 10 years, you pay down enough principal and uh, the property appreciated where now you can sell it and make a bunch of money. Uh, so that's good. For me, I come from residential real estate and residential real estate, when you're flipping houses, the equation is you got to be all in for 65% of that after repair value. So if I'm going to buy a house, and it's going to be worth hundred grand. I need to be all in purchase price, renovation price, and holding costs for around $65,000. I took that same formula and parlayed it into commercial real estate. So instead of, uh, you know, you're just adding some zeros. An apartment building that's worth $10 million, I need to be all in for $6.5 million. Mm -hmm. So typically what I buy is, is decently distressed, right? It's it's so distressed that the small guys can't qualify for it. And it's so distressed that the big guys don't want it, yeah, you know? Yeah. So I've, I've kind of found this niche where we're really good at project management. We're really good at repositioning assets that have, that are 50, 60% occupied with terrible management and haven't been had any CapEx done in the past decade or two. And so we're able to come in there, get a great deal on the acquisition price. We do an overhaul of the building, make them clean, safe, functional, cosmetically updated. And then we put good management and good tenants in place, totally lease this thing up, totally reposition it, rebrand it. And we, we, because we've done so much work in a pretty consolidated amount of time, it forces a significant amount of appreciation mm -hmm. in, in a relatively short amount of time. So we're able to hit those numbers in 12 to 24 months on average. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden we're all into this six and a half million dollar deal and it's worth 10 million bucks in 18 months down the road. That allows us to then turn around and refinance into long-term debt at that time at a, let's call it a 70% LTV loan. So 70% mortgage allows me to then pay off a, a short-term acquisition loan. of Let's say that's $5 million of the deal and one and a half million dollars of my six and a half million all in was private money investors. And then there's some refi proceeds as well. So that new refi loan allows me to pay back all my investors, pay off the short-term loan, carve up some refi proceeds, and then I don't owe anybody any money. So all the chips are off the table. It's only house money in play. Mm -hmm. And I can hold this thing for five years, 10 years, 30 years, if I, 50 years, if I wanted to, because I don't owe anybody any money anymore. Yeah. So there's some advantages to it, but there's also a lot of work that goes into it. So the way that we structured that we structure, and I just kind of, again, fell into this, is that I'll buy a deal. And because it's very predictable what my, what my investors pref payment would be, mm -hmm. I can make them a fixed pref payment. So I pay, let's say I pay my investors 10%. Let's say I raise a million dollars and it takes me 18 months to turn a deal. If I, if I borrow a million dollars from my investors, I can pay them $100,000 in year one and $50,000 in year two until mm -hmm. this thing stabilized and I refinance it and give them all their money back. 
So it's very predictable for me that I just need to make sure I build in $150,000 of uh, interest reserve, you know, yeah. pref reserve, you can call it whatever you want, into the deal. That allows me to then make payments to my investors every single quarter so that way they see money coming in. Yeah. They like that because all of a sudden, 90 days after they made the investment, wow, this thing works, right? Yeah. So now it's more confident in Tim, more confident in the team, less questions I get from it. And, you know, again, because it's distressed, it's tax advantage also because the, the prep isn't coming from, from cash flows. Yeah. So yeah. now it's, it's been reclassified into long-term capital gains, it's taxed whenever the property sells. And anyways, that, that overly complicates things. But what was beneficial for me and our joint venture operating partners or the other GPs is that we've taken the, the syndication equity split and totally flipped it on its head. So we usually keep 70 to 80% of the equity as the GPs, the investors get 20 to 30% of the equity. Mm -hmm. And you might think, dude, that's not a good deal. Like these investors are getting screwed. Well, are they, if they're making a double digit return on their money, predictable backed by a, a premium asset and, uh, and then they get all their money back in 18 months. Mm -hmm. So now they get their money back in 18 months. They made 10% of their money annualized, that's, which is super respectable. And then they keep 20% of the equity in the deal forever. Mm -hmm. So they have 20% of depreciation. They get 20% of appreciation. They get 20% of cash flows. They get 20% of refi proceeds. They get 20% of any future sales proceeds. There's a lot, I mean, and that's infinite return on their investment. Yeah. Not only that, but they're in one deal for, let's call it 24 months. Yeah. There's velocity on their capital where now they can get involved in three to five deals in that same five to 10 year term as they would in one traditional syndication. So it's just, it's not better. It's just different. It's different on a per deal basis. If I was buying something that was stabilized and it was a primo asset in a great location and I can get it at a, at a little bit of a discount, but maybe not 65 cents on the dollar, but maybe 80, 85 cents on the dollar, I would traditionally syndicate that. Yeah. But if I couldn't, or, or if, if, you know, if it's a premium asset and it's, premium location and it's totally stabilized and totally renovated, it's hard to find deep discounts on those kinds of deals. So most of the deals we just go in my portfolio, I, I told you before we started is it's $325 million of assets. I just did the numbers because I closed on a new deal yesterday. We're at 63.73% of uh, total all in price per stabilized value. So, wow. so if you take a look at that's across my entire portfolio, that includes debt and investor equity. Wow. So it's, we've been able to build a portfolio with a lot of spread in there just based on how we buy properties and, and the amount of work, like we're creating that as the operating partners, right? Like, you yeah. know how much work it is. Oh yeah. We put into these things, especially heavy value ads. And I think it's, I think it's only fair that a little bit more of the equity is carved up for the GPs in that position. And, and, and listen, man, I've, I've talked to a lot of equity investors who are used to traditional syndication and they mm -hmm. don't like it. And, and it's just like, I'm not going to do that. I'm sure principle. I would never invest with you, Tim. Totally understand. And then other people are like, I totally get it. I love how interests are aligned because I don't, I don't fee deals either. Like occasionally we'll take, I take an acquisition fee on about one third of the properties I buy. I don't take any acquisition, any asset management, fundraising, you know, any of these other things. So my payday comes from refi proceeds and mm -hmm. cash flow thereafter. So my investors are getting paid regardless of the property's performance. I only get paid once the property pays back the yeah. investors and that's when Tim and team get paid. So now all of a sudden we're in the same boat rowing in the same direction versus some traditional syndications. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, 
it's a little bit different. Like sometimes, you know, if the, fee, if the deal's performing or not performing, sometimes the GP gets a, a, a fee. If the deal's not performing, the investor doesn't make any money. So yeah. it's just, again, it depends on the deal, depends on the structure, depends on how good of a deal it is, where it is, all, a lot of different things. So there's different structures for different deals and that's just what I've kind of fallen into. And, you know, I mean, candidly, it's, it's tough for me to raise money on a traditional syndication yeah. because my investors are used to getting their money back every 24 months now and cycling it that way. So I've kind of, you know, shot myself in the foot on this thing. You've kind of niched yourself though, too. I mean, you've yeah. got a unique, you've got a unique offering that a lot of people don't necessarily have anywhere else where they can go and get that same, same type mm -hmm. of thing. Or, you know, there's hundreds of syndicators that, you know, pretty well all operate the same way. So, so that, mm -hmm. that, that's unique. So, well, so I, oh, go ahead. And, and it boils down to two things. You got to get really good at finding off market direct to seller deals. Mm -hmm. and you got to be a badass at, at um, project management. Because if yeah. you're not good at construction and things go long, things go over budget, the whole thing can blow up in your face. So if you're like, you, you got to be really, really, you have those things, two things dialed in really, really well. Yeah. And then it makes a lot of sense, you know? So I've also been in other ones that have gone long and all of a sudden it, it gets a little bit messy. So making sure that due diligence is dialed in, making sure that, you know, whoever's overseeing project management knows what the heck they're doing. Yeah. The management company knows what the heck they're doing and how to reposition assets and rebrand them and remarket them. Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. It's, it's important stuff because it's very, very management intensive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so talk a little bit about how you uh, manage that construction uh, project. What types of tools do you use? What types of systems do you have in place? And I know that you have a team as well that, that helps on that, but um, can you talk a little bit about those types of things? Yeah. So, so my team is rock stars. Like I, I think, you know, like my vision or, and, and my, my goals or uh, I'm sorry, my, my um, greatest skill set, I, I would say, would be painting a vision mm -hmm. uh, to people to attract A players to my team, even if I can't compensate them what they're worth today. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to attract some rock star individuals on my team that I just kind of painted the vision for five years, 10 years down the road. And now we're hitting stride in that. And so, you know, I've given them equity and profit share in my different deals. So that way they saw the long-term goals and the visions and it's, it's been huge for them. So I've been able to attract some, some stars and they handle a lot of the operations. I found that I'm really good at certain things and I'm really, I create chaos and other elements of the business, <laughs> yeah. you know? So I'm good at marketing. I'm good at social media. I'm good at raising private money. What I'm not good at is uh, standard operating procedures. I mean, I've yeah. done it and I did it in residential for a long time. But the reason it was always chaotic is because I was in charge of it. I'm always the bottleneck in that, in that side of things. So I found somebody who complemented my skill set really, really well and brought them into my organization. So my COO, his name's Matt Carlin, 
is a rock star. And he's built out all sorts of standard operating procedures, checklists, and uh, he's the systems guy. So we use something called monday.com, mm -hmm. which is a workflow management system. There's a lot of different ones that are out there. Asana's out there and a bunch of different ones that are out there, but he likes that one. It's very user-friendly. It's user-friendly not only for the people who like the, the standard operating procedures and the structure, but it's user-friendly for my acquisitions guy who is not that kind of structured type individual and he can easily navigate the, the, the you know, the, uh, the interface. Monday.com yeah. Yeah, interface. So that's what we use. And I can, I can tell you that I've logged into it one time in two <laughs> years since we implemented it or, or two and a half years since we implemented it. So the good news is I got a great team in place and they know how to do all of yeah. it. And, uh, and I can stay focused on what I do and it makes their job easier because I'm able to source deal flow. I'm more able to source, you know, investor capital and, um, uh, do all that, that, those kinds of things, which just make their life easier to focus on what they're really, really good at. Yeah. So, so speaking of uh, sourcing deal flow, where, where do you invest or how, how do you select the locations where you invest in multifamily opportunities? Yeah. Most of the opportunities that we come across are usually in. So first of all, I do a little bit of education stuff. I kind of fell into it when I was talking about some multifamily deals, as I'm sure you do, like mm -hmm. people hit you up and Hey, do you consult, you coach, can I pay you to mentor me? And I, I turned that into kind of like a coaching program where I do, you know, a live event, like once a quarter for the past few years. And um, I've had anywhere from hundred to 200 people come out to that. And I just kind of teach them how to go out and find deals the way that we do. And so we found, we source deals the same way that I did in the residential world. So in the residential, they teach you how to go out and find off market direct to seller deals by, you know, cold calling by outbound voicemail, text messages, direct dialing, driving for dollars, direct mail, you know, networking at real estate investors associations and landlord associations and mastermind events and all these different things. We do the same thing with multifamily, right? Mm -hmm. Like just cause just like there's houses with tall grass and boarded up windows, there's apartment buildings with tall grass and boarded up windows. And so you can go to the building department and find out which, which buildings have uh, you know, any sort of violations on them mm -hmm. and reach out to those building owners. You can, you can look up delinquent taxes. You can look up Google reviews is a great one. Just Google yeah. search Cleveland, Ohio uh, apartment buildings, see what pops up, look for the ones with the worst reviews. Chances are they're not being taken care of. They got bad management in place. They got angry tenants, the city's on their ass. So there's a lot of different things that you can do to be creative. Go hang out. You know, what's going to be a good one hanging out at eviction court. As soon as yeah. they open up these moratoriums, yeah. there's yeah. going to be a lot of motivated landlords <laughs> hanging out there management companies and um, attorneys that represent motivated landlords as well. So go and hang out, rub elbows, pass out a business card, meet people and tell them that you're looking to buy apartment buildings. So we do that. I've taught all my students how to do that. And what's happened is I've created a lot of bird dogs mm -hmm. uh, at, where they're going out doing all these things in their municipalities, their communities, and then they're bringing in the deals to me that they can't qualify for. So they don't have the money. They don't have the balance sheet. They need someone to just kind of look over their shoulder and hold their hand. And they bring those to me. And now all of a sudden they can get into a deal that they couldn't get into. I can get into a deal that I wouldn't have gotten into. And all of a sudden we both build wealth and make money. So it's, um, it's worked out really, really well. And that's how we've sourced a lot of projects. So a lot of our stuff happens to come into the Southeastern portion of the United States. I know you're heavy in mm -hmm. Atlanta area. Uh, majority of our portfolios in Georgia, South Carolina. I got some stuff in Alabama, North Carolina, Florida. Uh, where else? Louisiana just closed on a deal yesterday. Yeah, so, I saw that. Yeah. So we, we have um, heavy in the Southeast. I also own some stuff in Texas and Oklahoma and then some stuff obviously in Cleveland and 
uh, throughout the Midwest too. So most of the stuff that we come across is in secondary and tertiary kind of cities. They might be flat. I don't really look that much into is the city growing or is it dying? We look a little bit at that, but really we look at, you know, what's the median income in the area and in the, in the vicinity. And I want to make sure that I'm going to have the nicest building at market rate rents. Mm-hmm. If I have the nicest building in the area at market rate rents, I know all the quality tenants are going to move into my property. Yep. And so all of a sudden I attract the best tenants in the area. Cause there's always going to be like, I live in, you know, Charleston, South Carolina. Now Charleston as a whole is growing. The Island that I live on is totally capped out and it's mm-hmm. been steady, you know, capped out for the past 20 years. So it's not growing, but it's also not dying. And so it's just stagnant. Does that mean it's not an A-class area? I mean, I'm surrounded by, there's, there's, I don't know, more houses on the Island worth over $3 million than under $3 million. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's an amazing community. It's an A-class area but it doesn't meet the demographics that, that some people look for in certain municipalities to go and invest in. So would you not invest here? No, I'll still invest here, even if it's got flat you know, uh, growth. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't pay that much attention to that. Again, I look more on a micro level of, do I have the, can I have the nicest building at market rate rents? I don't mm-hmm. try to charge a premium. I just want the best building, the nicest finishes, the nicest amenities to attract the highest quality tenants into that building at the same rent that they would pay for a not as nice and not as many amenity type property across the street. And that allows me to stay occupied, allows mm-hmm. me to stay steady and predictable in my maintenance schedules and everything else that comes with it. And plus you're, you're acquiring these things at, at such a good cost basis too, that, you know, mm-hmm. it's difficult to, to not, you know, not make money there. You mentioned before that you want the the average income to be a certain level. What is the threshold that you look for in the areas that, that you're, you're looking at for that, that average income? Yeah, so we usually invest in workforce kind of B and A minus class housing. So B minus is like the lowest we'll go. We, we try to stick to that B plus kind of an area. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I rate it, I'm rating it area. I'm not rating the building, right? Like I want the ugliest house on the best block. I want yeah. the worst building in the best neighborhood. Uh, that's where you get the appreciation that jumps in. So, so we're usually looking for somewhere in that $50,000 range. Okay. The building we just bought has a, has a median income of $75,000 in an area that's flat, you know, mm-hmm. but it's $75,000 median household income yeah. in, in, within five miles. And so you're like, man, there's some, there's some serious cash in this area um, and there's jobs and it's steady. It's just not growing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. You know, I, so I went to one of your events in, I think it was Orlando, January, I think of 2019, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. At any rate, you, you made uh, mention of a buyer is a seller is a investor, you know, just depending where they are in the life cycle. And that, that really struck me. You know, I think that that absolutely makes total and complete sense. So, so, Talk about how you go about networking with, you know, people that you may or may not ever do business with. Do you have any strategies or techniques to, you know, reach out and connect with other people that you may think might be an owner, investor, you know, seller, again, depending where they are in their life cycle? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and hitting on that point, like, look at, look at me. I, we were talking before this is like, I am a net buyer of real estate. However, I'm selling a $75 million portfolio right now. Mm-hmm. 1,300 units are, are going out the door. All my like C, C plus that kind of got me to where I am. I plan on selling. 
And so I'm buying real estate, I'm selling real estate, and I passively invest in real estate. I just, you know, I had uh, my own investment fund where I then go and deploy money into deals with great operators. Mm -hmm. And so I'm doing all three of those things at one time. Some people are only doing one at one time or two of them at one time. But if you're a buyer, you're eventually going to be a seller, you know, or you're going to, and if you're a seller, you're eventually going to be a private money lender, right? Like you, you, you've tasted residual income, passive income. So I, I always, I try to build all three of those funnels. I try to build a funnel of investors. I try to build a funnel and, and attract investors. Maybe that's through social media. Maybe I'm talking about a deal and I'm talking about the, what the investor returns look like on a past deal, right? Like you can't project returns or, or try to guarantee, but you can talk about doing a case study on a past deal a lot of times, as long as it's packaged the right way. And, um, and you can attract investors that way. You can, if I'm, if I'm looking for people who are looking to buy apartment buildings, I'm telling them that I'm looking to sell. And all of a sudden, hey, if you're interested in buying an apartment building, I got XYZ for sale. Send me your contact information and I'll send you over a package. Now I'm getting their information. They have money, obviously. Even if they don't buy my package, I know that they have money. Maybe I can turn them into a private money lender and maybe they'd like to be passive instead of active. And same thing with, with uh, sellers. If I know that somebody's selling, they, I, like I've raised money from some people at the closing table saying, hey, what are you doing with all this cash that you're about to yeah. get? Oh, I don't really know. It's going to sit in my bank account. Why don't you lend it back to me at 11% interest only? You know, oh, that's a pretty good deal. Okay, I'm in. So I'm just talking about it, right? And I think it's kind of cliche to say, but you just add value. You add value to people. You add value in educating them. Mm-hmm. Like, like you're adding a ton of value to your followers and your listeners by having this podcast, by bringing on guests and sharing knowledge about how to build wealth and how to build lifestyle and, and tax advantages and all those different amazing things, you are going to you know, derive private money and mm-hmm. deal flow and all those different things from having your own podcast. So I do the same thing. I just do it through social media. I'm not really good with the tech stuff. And so it's just easy for me to pick up my phone and just go live on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it gets shot out to everybody. And then eventually they follow me or they share it, they like it or whatever. I've also been very intentional about who am I friends with on Facebook. I've had a lot of people that were, you know, buddies in high school and college and, um, or people that I never really knew. And, you know, I just trying to, I was, I was friends with them. And then all of a sudden it, it turned into like, if you have any negativity, if you don't yeah. take personal responsibility, if you are in a dead end job and you blame everybody else, like I befriend them, right? Yeah. They're just not, they're not on the same path as what I'm going on. Yep. So I'm very intentional about friending up real estate investors, real estate entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs that are not in real estate. Why? Because real estate entrepreneurs are going to bring deal flow. People who are involved in real estate, wholesaling real estate, flipping real estate, they're, they're going to be able to source deals and send them to me. And then uh, entrepreneurs who are not involved in real estate, they have money. They're really good at making money. They're very bad at deploying it. They're, mm-hmm. they're, most entrepreneurs that I know that are not real estate investors are very poor at deploying their capital into assets to generate more, more income. So uh, they can launch a product, they can sell their business, they can start another business, they can you know, go public and they're really good at making a lot of money, but then they have no idea what to do with it. So yeah. they see my posts over and over and over again and talking about how to invest in real estate. And you, know, you build a relationship, whether they've ever reached out to me or not, we live in a voyeurism society where people are just looking at what we're doing. They might not be commenting, they might not be liking, but they're seeing it and they see it on Facebook. And, um, it's free to have 5,000 friends. So yeah. I went through Facebook 
And I friended up entrepreneurs and I friended up real estate professionals. And that's most of who, who I'm connected with on, on social media. A lot of my students, you know, I'm friends with on, on social media as well. And so I just try to connect with those kinds of people because we're going in the same direction, right? Like I want people on the train, you know, who are, who, yeah, are going exactly. down, who are going down the same path as me. And if I'm not saying anything, you know, there's nothing bad about people. They're, they're, they're great, amazing human beings, but they were on the train ride for a few stops, right? Mm-hmm. And then they got off and they have no intent of getting back on the same train that I'm, that I'm on. Yeah. And so I'll still be friends with them, still buy them a beer, hang out and, and whatever. But, you know, I use social media as a tool and a tool creates leverage. It makes your life, it makes your job easier. I try not to consume on social media unless it's somebody that I really look up to and a mentor to me, but I do create on social media. I'm always creating content that will source deals and will source money. If you're doing those two things, man, you're in really good position in, in uh, real estate. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. And one of the other great things about you too is, I mean, obviously you're a very, very motivated and driven person, but you're also very connected with your family and very much so, you know, set, set time aside for your family. So mm-hmm. congrats, congrats on being able to make that, that uh, you know, make that delineation. Cause I know that's difficult for myself and many other. You gotta be intentional about it, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just gotta, like we time block, I'm time blocking for you. I'm not going to take a phone call or, you know, like, why do we do that for business? But we don't do it for our family. And yeah. uh, I messed up bad when my daughter was two years old and she asked me to go play with her. And, and I said, let, let me send this text message. And, and then she went and started playing by herself. And I'm like, what? I finished the text message. I'm like, who, who, what the hell am I doing? Like, yeah, yeah. what am I thinking? I'm, whether she knows it or not, I'm planting a seed in the back of her head that, you know, the number one man in her life that she comes to for love and appreciation and affection and support and consolation, like, like, all of a sudden I'm planting a seed of disappointment of yeah. being, being ignored. And then all of a sudden she grows up and she thinks that's what love is. And she starts dating some jerks yeah. and then she starts getting into poor relationships and it's my fault. Right. So I became very intentional about making sure that I time block time for the family in the evenings. We're always like, I don't do podcasts in the evening, right? That's yeah. why I book all my podcasts in the middle of the day. And I make it very intentional where I don't book anything Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And uh, those are just me days. And then I do all my podcasts Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays or, yeah, you know, love it. work type stuff. Yeah. Love it. No. And, and we're right up on time here, Tim. This has been fantastic. If people want to learn more about you or any of your programs or anything, what would you say is the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah. I appreciate that, man. I mean, just hit me up on Facebook. I'm, I'm most, active on, most active on Facebook at Tim Bratz or at TL Bratz is my uh, Facebook I'm also on Instagram at Tim Bratz and just shoot me a message. Um, I personally respond to all those messages. And if there's anything that I can help anybody with, you know, I mean, that's, there were people that had their hand out and, and lifted me up and helped me up. So I always try to give back as much as I possibly can on social media. And so, yeah, those are the best ways to connect with me. Love it. Love it. Tim, this is fantastic. I appreciate the time and uh, good luck on, on the next ventures. And hopefully we'll do some business here someday together. Looking forward to it, bud. Thank you for everything that you do. No problem. No problem. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.